Hey, welcome back to part two of I Was Born Before the End of Jim Crow as we continue our conversation with Mrs. Roots and Steve Weiss. This is going to be good, y'all. Yeah. She's 100% right. You know, the laws, the laws don't change people. The laws just change what they're supposed to follow. Here's a great example. You're driving down I-95, the speed limit is 65. You're going 75, maybe close to 80. Over 80 is reckless driving. But let's say you're going 75 and, and somebody says, you know, there's a cop down the road. So you slow down. You slow down because you know you're going to get caught. And then once you're out of the cop's view, you keep going up again at, at 75, maybe close to 80 miles an hour. And it's the same thing with, with laws. You know, people will follow them unless they know they can get away with something else. So that's why it's either inherent in the person to be good or it's inherent to the person to be bad. And if the person is going to be bad, you can make all the laws you want, but they'll, where there's a will, there's a way, you know, you get a, bur you get a burglar alarm for your house, they'll figure out how to get through it. Oh, yeah. uh, wow. it, it you know, and, and Matt, you know, I, you know, I keep telling you, I keep praising you about these civil conversations, you know, a long time ago, a civics teacher that I had said, bureaucracy moves incrementally. And, you know, these civil conversations aren't going to change the world. But every conversation we have and the more people that listen to it incrementally, it's going to make a difference. Now, again, we're not going to save the world, but these are these are extremely valuable conversations. And that's why not only should you continue them, but we should we should make everybody aware of them, because it, it takes this type of dialogue to understand what people are all about and 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 how we need to change to make society better, because you can go to school for 25 years. It doesn't make you any smarter socially. It just makes you smarter book-wise. Yeah, I think, first off, thank you. I, I appreciate the, the, the compliment there. I think it's super important to have these conversations. One of the reasons why I created and started this, and it was very random. I mean, Jessica and Tim can tell you, it was very random. I just asked them, hey, you want to do this, this talk? Um, it was to, I just felt like conversations need to be had and we need to take the media out of the discussion. Not saying, I'm not sitting here having a political conversation, I'm being honest. Um, the media has stolen all of our abilities to tell our own stories and to have our own conversations. And we need to start, we need to stop looking at the screen and start looking to our left and right. I mean, obviously we're all looking at a screen now and having a conversation with our neighbor, our coworkers, you know, the, our fellow church members, so that we can develop um, a love for people that are near us um, on a day-to-day -day basis. That way, when we look at what the news is saying, you can, you, no matter what your color is, you can deny it, right? Because you know what the truth is, or you, can, you have to accept some of it, and then maybe hopefully not try to bring that into your world, but at least you know, you know um, that you have a better understanding of what's going on with the people next to you. I want to ask a question um, of you both. And I'm, I'm referencing this around the 60s, right? There were several major incidences that happened in the 60s, um, but there were three deaths specifically. There was JFK, I'm doing them in order, right? There was JFK, there was Malcolm X, and then there was Martin Luther King. Um, and I, I've always kind of wondered, I've, I've spoken to a few people, what was that like, right? So I know Steve, for you, you were a kid, um, and you were in the North. That's a different perspective than you, Mrs. Roots, and I'm gonna give you the opportunity first to answer. Like, what was life like when these things happened, right? For, for, for you as an African-American woman living in Virginia? Well, I often say, um, 
when when J I was doing domestic work when uh, JFK was assassinated, and it was, and I compare that to the time that when Barack Obama was nominated and elected to be the president of the United States, it was. We've just, I think, uh, JFK, when he got to be president, it was like the black people said, oh, we have something to hope for. Mm. We're going to see some changes because, you know, you had the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and all that kind of stuff. And it was like things are going to be so much better. And it was the same thing with Barack Obama. And it just seemed like everybody was on their best behavior. At that time, people would hold the door for you, open the car door for you, whatever. And everybody was just as friendly as they could be. And it just seems like right, i never forget that day when he got assassinated. I was working down a place called Fulton in the East End. I just packed my stuff up. I didn't tell anybody I was going home. I just packed myself up and I went home. And it was so sad. And it just seemed like from that day on, this United States started to go into hell in handbasket. Mm -hmm. I mean, the morals just, just went into decay. And it was just like nobody cared about anybody. Nobody cared about anything. And it just reverted back almost to the way, way back to the look like to the dark ages. And then after Martin Luther King was assassinated and Bobby, it was, I don't know. It just seemed like the world was not the same anymore. And we just seems like we stopped making progress at that point. I, I, I didn't see anything to be so hopeful for until the Barack Obama became president. But that was just like a time of moral decay for me. Really? So when you say Bobby, you're talking about Bobby Kennedy, right? Bobby, Bobby Kennedy, Kennedy when he was a couple of months after uh, MLK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think he was shot after a rally, right? Like in the back of a, like the kitchen. Yeah, in the California, he had just won the primary in California. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, um, that's, that's why I think what you, what you said is like, you felt like the 60s, we went into like a moral decay after all of that, like after the 60s. And what's right. interesting is that like, when you say that, it makes me think, and I'm not sure if anyone else is thinking the same thing on, on comments or whatever, but just from my perspective, right? I'm born in 81. So you guys have lived a life before I even showed up. But I... You keep rubbing that in. <laughs> isn't that the point of the show? <laughs> What I think is interesting is that I, I, the laws had changed. And I think to your point, Steve, earlier about laws, it's interesting that from your perspective, Mrs. Roots, right, around how you felt like we went into like a moral decay, but yet very important laws for uh, minorities were put in place in the late 60s going into the 70s to help hopefully rectify some of this. So was the... But then, Steve, you bring up a point about the law and how the laws don't necessarily change people. But yet we put laws in place to help change people. It's, I'm not going anywhere with my point, but it's just a, a revelation, I guess. I'm just realizing, like, wow, like, the dynamics between the two. Um, 
It's pretty interesting. Well, when you think about it, even even now, if you watch television and you see all these states like uh, Georgia, Mississippi, South Carolina, where even though we have a right to vote, they find a way to close down all these polling places and make people stand in line for six hours for voter suppression, or you get to the poll and your name's been taken off, or you you not you you're in the wrong place. You got to go across town somewhere, or the voting machines don't work. These are tactics from way back in the fifties when you had to pay a poll tax to vote, and then you had to almost recite the wow. Constitution backwards and forward. I mean, just all kind of stumbling blocks that they put in your yeah. way. And we're almost at that point now in, in some of yeah. these states. Mm. You know, it's like said, this is a frightening time. This is a frightening time, no, no doubt. Is. Really? Yeah. So, so, Steve, let me ask you this question. So, um, when, uh, what was it like in the Northeast for you? Um, I know a little bit of this story uh, when Dr. King passed. Sure. So, when Dr. King passed, when Dr. King passed in uh, 68, so I was 16 years old. And, uh, you know, again, as a 16 year old, I don't know, maybe the kids nowadays at that age are a little bit more uh, aware, uh, you know, obviously with uh, all of the cable channels and everything. But in those days, there was ABC, CBS and NBC. That was your those are your options. Right. So when Martin Luther King was killed that particular day, he was killed, I think, either late afternoon or early evening. I think it was early evening. And uh, my parents and my best friend at that time. Uh, his parents, we, both sets of parents took us to buy 10-speed bicycles. And I'm living in the Bronx on uh, uh, near Yankee Stadium. <clears throat> and uh, we went to buy our bicycles. And the, par the parents said, you know, we'll put them on top of the car and we'll drive them home. And we, my friend and I said, no, no, we'll ride them home. So they said, are you sure? We said, yeah, we'll ride them home. We won't be home too late. So uh, we started riding. And I said, well, let's you know, let's not go right home. Let's take a little bit of a detour. There you go, the rebellion again. So let's take a little bit of a detour. So we drove towards Yankee Stadium and right behind Yankee Stadium, it's what's known as the 161st Street Bridge because Yankee Stadium at that time, it still is on 161st Street. Sorry, Jason. Um, and uh, and uh, so we, we drove, we rode over the 161st Street Bridge. And at that point, Martin Luther King had been dead a couple of hours. But on the other side of the bridge was Harlem. And I knew, I knew it was Harlem. I had no problem riding over there, but we didn't know about uh, the death of Dr. King. And at that point, there were police on, with helmets and riot gear on on the other side. And my buddy and I were riding over and we thought maybe it's for a movie. We didn't have a clue what it was for until we saw a rush of crowds from the Harlem side come after us. And we immediately turned around. Unfortunately, my friend, uh, the, the rioters got him and beat the heck out of him but uh the cops you know i told the i got sent the cop over a couple of cops over and, and they got him out but that was a traumatic time and you know again i didn't understand the 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 value that dr king brought to the table i didn't i didn't know his story um I, I've, obviously i've since learned a lot but you know it, again it was something that it, when they told me who dr king was and what he stood for and what he had accomplished in his life you know i didn't know anything about it up until that point so what's interesting is like, um, probably from a, a northern, I, and I don't, again, I know you, not everybody's story in the Northeast is exactly the same, right? So you are just one, one guy. But I find it interesting that you didn't fully hear that, like hear anything or know much about Martin Luther King at all. But then 
when you when your friend got caught by the riot, and that was that was a black crowd, right? Obviously. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah. Yeah, um, it's okay to say it was a black crowd. Like, it's just it's it, it it's. I mean, I'm sure they were, you know, pissed off at what happened. Do you understand the rage? Like, why that happened? Like, why not saying I'm not saying it was okay. Not at the moment. Idiot. Obviously, not at the moment. No, no, not at the moment. I'm saying like looking back. Like, did you understand? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, you did. No, um, no doubt. No doubt. And I even had to self-educate myself about Malcolm X because when Malcolm X was killed, it was on the news. He was killed in New York. It was it was on the news, and you know the the bulletin came on, and I said to my mom and dad, "Who's Malcolm X?" You know, again, I wasn't someone, uh, you know, again, back in those days, three, three news stations, you had the daily new, you know, daily newspaper and you had the New York post. I didn't read anything other than the sports page, Jason, to see if the Yankees won or lost. Um, but, <laughs> but I didn't, you know, I didn't read the news. I didn't understand it all. I was reading sports and I was playing sports and I was having a good old time, uh, yes. you know, and, and sports and uh, news wasn't as prevalent and there weren't as many choices in those days. Uh, you know, but you have to, you obviously as the story went on and uh, I just, just, just as an aside, um, <clears throat> one of my uh, idols was Elvis Presley. I, I just loved his music. I loved his movies, you know, that's, I'm aging myself, but that's okay. You already know how old I am. Um, and for, for my 60th birthday, my daughter, knowing how much I loved Elvis Presley, took me on a trip to Graceland. That was the only thing on my bucket list before I'll kick the bucket. So she took me to Graceland, which is in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, we, it was a three-day weekend that we went, and we were going to go to the Graceland to see different things each of those days. Well, one evening, we decided to drive around. And we're driving around. We had no idea we were going. St. Jude's has a has their main hospital in uh, Memphis. So we went to St. Jude's Hospital and saw that. Uh, but then we're driving around and all of a sudden I see a sign that says Lorraine Hotel around the corner. So I said to my daughter, oh my God, Lorraine Hotel. We're in Memphis. That's where Dr. King was killed. So we drove around and the, the motel obviously is closed now, but it, it was kept in the same uh, style and fashion and the cars that were parked there the day he was shot are still there and we were as, it's, it's there's a fence you know protecting the property so you really can't go in the parking lot or in the hotel but I was within 25 yards of where Dr. King was killed and they it was and I'm getting the chills just telling you the story because it, it was so emotional it was so emotional knowing now as an adult about his story and standing there 25 yards for where he was killed. And in my mind, I could see uh, the Reverend Jesse Jackson uh, pointing you know, to where the belief, he believed the shot. Right. And I'm reliving this in my mind. And I gotta tell you something, it was extremely emotional. Extremely. And I appreciate you sharing that perspective, especially because of the, you had basically two aspects of your life, right? One where people are reacting to the death immediately and your friend gets jumped and then fast forward uh, you said you're 16. So fast forward 44 years later, you're standing where he was killed and that meant something to you. And oh. a lot of that, that meant something to you because you, at one point you had no knowledge and at another point you had knowledge. And I think that's critical for everyone to understand is that um, willful ignorance is very dangerous. So that's why it's important to be educated and have knowledge, right? And I say you were willfully ignorant, you were not. However, I think when, when we refuse to inform ourselves and get educated on certain things we miss out on being able to connect with people at a deeper level um that we <laughs> you know, know 
probably haven't even um, couldn't imagine. I, I watch Dr. Phil a lot. I watch I watch a lot of talk shows. Uh, I'm very selective, and I listen to a lot of talk shows uh, uh, on the radio and podcasts. And one of the things that Dr. Phil drives home is you cannot correct what you don't acknowledge. That's fair. You, you can't. cannot correct what you don't acknowledge. That's very and, fair. And, you know, until people understand that, they're just pulling the wool over other people's eyes and themselves. Yeah. So, Mrs. Roots, um, you know, with with all that, obviously, Steve said, but like, you know, moving towards you, you know, what what about for you? Like, how how do you feel? I know you mentioned the moral decay, but moving forward as an adult and, and having children and having grandchildren, what what is life? What is your perspective of the last 40 years? You know, you can share some of what you already probably prepped or whatever. But like, what is your what is your perspective of the last 40 years and things that you've been through um, that that shaped who you are today you know well i guess i found out early uh what hate was and i tried not to let it define me that's why i say it may seem like i'm walking around with a chip on my shoulder i'm really not and i try to teach my children that um always remember to treat people the way you want to be treated. And I came from a big family. My mom and dad had eight children and uh, we were poor, but I, I have always felt like I was rich. We lived in, when we lived in West Virginia, we had a big house, had about five bedrooms to it. And we, my, my mom, my dad did a, my dad was a brick mason. He was a cement finisher. And most of those, um, Steve, you might know downtown, uh, the Federal Reserve buildings, and almost all of those tall buildings that you see downtown on Main Street, Franklin Street and all. And my dad helped build almost every one of those buildings. Wow. And, but we weren't, we didn't have any money because my mom had eight kids and my dad was the only one working. And before he started to doing that, he worked in the shipyard in Newport News. And way back then it was hard to find work because you know, the depression came along like in the thirties. And so it was hard for him to find work, but he always managed to have a job. And my dad always said, people used to say, Fred, you sure do have a lot of kids. He said, well, that's okay. If you have if you have one, you give that one all you got. If you have eight, you divide what you have among those eight children. Mm. And we had all around the house, we had peach trees all around. We had apple trees. And in the summer, we had every everything you could plant. And I never known my mom to go to the store and buy anything except salt and lard. Cause they canned everything yeah. and we had, we had food summer, winter, spring and fall and didn't have to buy anything. And when we left West Virginia and came to, to uh, Richmond, that's when my dad left the shipyard and came to work. And I had my, my children, I said, right now, I just feel like the richest person in the world. I tell people, I don't, I don't have a fancy house. I don't have a fancy car, but I have the good Lord 
and I know him and he knows me and I'm on his side and he looks out for me. Mm. And I, like I say, if these people who hate you because of the color of their skin, they're going to be shocked when they get to the pearly gates and have to answer for their sins that they didn't love mankind like the Lord said, love your neighbor as yourself. And this, this, these last few weeks have shown me, I've, I've learned a lot, even though I'm old now, I've learned a lot about people that it's surprising. I did a um, thing on YouTube about gentrification. And I was telling people that in, when I was growing up or when I was raising my children, mm-hmm. we had what you call a neighborhood. And the neighbors knew who their neighbors were. And it was like, if you needed something, I could go to your house and say, I don't have any flour. Can you let me have a cup of flour until I get to the store? And that kind of thing, that's, that's how we grew up. But now, people don't know who their neighbors are. They don't speak. I got a neighbor on the corner up there for me. They've been there about 30-some years. I wouldn't know those people if they walked right in. <laughs> but, you know, it's just a difference. And just in these last few weeks, I have a couple who lives on this side of me. They moved up here from Florida. And because of when that George Floyd murder happened, I think that was an eye opener for them as much as it has been for a whole lot of people in these United States. Mm-hmm. And I think they actually felt bad. And I guess they thought they needed to come to me almost to confess their sins. But I, I mean, that's just the way it seemed like they wrote me this, they wrote me this, this, this letter and they bought me, um, flowers they bought me fruit and the little kids one is two and i think the other one is three or four they made cars themselves and just talked about how sorry they were that things were going on in the neighborhood i mean not in the neighborhood going on you know with, with the right. children and, all. and i i don't know if they felt responsible or just what it was, but it just seemed like they were so sorrowful. Well, I was just as sorrowful as they were because, I mean, you have no right to kill anybody. And so they, are, and I think too, they know the Lord, they're church going people, they go to church. Mm-hmm. But these people who still hate, and like Martin Luther King says, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated time in the United States because if you go into these churches, and I live in a place called, I live in the East End, we call it Church Hill. And it's a church on almost every corner in Church Hill. Mm-hmm. Well, you shouldn't have any sinners there. Everybody ought to be going. <laughs> but I mean, you, you, know, you go to church and still don't, you, you got a lot of people in church, but they don't have any church in them. And I think that's what needs to happen. You, these people have got to get some church in them and the laws that they make or fail to make where you can just kill a man just because you have a gun and a badge, you got to change some hearts. They need some come to Jesus meetings so this world can change. And this, this I, I, I will always believe, this pandemic that we're going through now, God is doing this. He's trying to tell us something and we better start listening. 
It's like he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And you, instead of loving your neighbor, you're killing your neighbor. Mm. That's not what God wants. And he's, uh, they're, they're going to, before this pandemic is over, they're going to listen. Might take them a long time to learn. And this pandemic is not going away. Donald Trump think it got hot. And it's going to, when it gets hot, <laughs> that the heat is going to kill it. He's just a jackass and he don't know no better, but they better listen because we need to be praying for the Lord to come and heal the land. And that's what he said. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will they hear from heaven and I will heal their land. And I pray for healing every day. Because I know that's the only thing that's going to get us out of the situation that we're in. So, mm-hmm. got to learn how to love in spite of the color of your skin. I, I love the perspective you, you're given in, in multiple layers. And Steve, you can respond as well. I, I can't I, top that. I can't top that. I just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, well, it wasn't it. It's, I, I just, it was just real. Um, and we're going to walk, we're going to walk through that for those who, you know, I mean, I think people know that I'm also a believer, but I think it's important the dynamics you gave in regards to the way you, the way people started treating you after Mm -hmm. the George Floyd situation. At 86 years old, and I'm 39, and I had the same feeling. I was kind of like, whoa, like what is, like what's everybody doing? Is everybody sorry about something was going on? You know what I mean? And it's just that they're all coming at me. And And I think it's hard because you almost, there's a part of us as African-Americans and Steve, I'll just share this with you where we're like, I'm just tired and I don't want to be responsible for educating white America. At the same time, you almost have to be gracious, right? Because there are some people who are just trying to learn. Now, some people just want to learn in order to defend their stance, but -hmm. I think some of them really are just trying to learn. And the fact that they did that to you and that still had an impact to you, meaning like, you know, bringing the the flower, I think you said the flowers and, and, and stuff like that in the cards for you, that says a lot, you know? Um, and then moving that into the beauty of loving your neighbor and what that means in scripture and what that means for people to understand that 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 they need uh, a walk, a walk with God in order to be able to attain um, healing. And like you said, Churchill, <laughs> Churchill really should be sinless, but we all know yeah, it's not. We all know it's not. <laughs> we all know it's not. Um, I want to I want to say this one thing. Um, I know we didn't really go into questions. I think there was a lot. There were a lot of comments, um, but I I I do want to you know from both of you guys' perspective to kind of close this off because I, I intentionally thought I, I didn't post this out there. I figured it would be about ninety minutes or so. Um, I want to go to Steve real quick. Um, when you came to the South, uh, and again, this is the last thing before we wrap up. When you came to the South. Um, I know you told me one story last night. I thought that was, yeah. but I think actually that's what you should share. Um, I'm talking about the security. Yeah, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, what What was an eye opener for you? Because you you're from the north, you dealt with racial biases, but you didn't live in the south where it was a part of lifestyle, especially where the laws were in place. What what? Well, when my wife and I, uh, after we had gotten married, uh, I left. Uh, uh, standard. I left Standard and I got a job in Long Island and we were living in Queens at the time and she got a job in Long Island as well. So we ended up moving to Long Island so we'd both be closer to our 
jobs. And Long Island is very different than the city, you know, and I, I, people, just like today, people think, they say, gee, I, you're telling me you're not from the South? I, I would swore you were from the South. I said, you got to be kidding. The way I speak, you think I come from the South? No, at 68, anyway, you still sound like you just got picked up off of like Brooklyn yeah, or something, man. Like, <laughs> the E-train. So when we moved to Long Island, you know, I stood out very different because of the way I speak. And out in Long Island, it's very proper and blah, blah, blah. And I told them, you know, they said, where are you from? And I said, well, I grew up in Fort Apache. Then we moved to Queens. And I said, you heard of Port Fort Apache in the Bronx, didn't you? They made a movie out of it. And they said, well, that was just a movie. That's not real, was it? Said, yeah, <laughs> that was real. So, uh, uh, so uh, then we ended up, my job uh, relocated me to, to, I told you, Waco, Texas. And uh, when my wife went down there for a look around to see if we actually wanted to make the move, they hooked us up with a real estate agent and they put us in the only hotel in Waco, which was the Hilton. And it was probably about 30 stories. So the uh, real estate agent came and said, uh, I'll meet you at the hotel. I'll come up to your room and we'll talk about what you may be looking for. We had a great view of, of the entire city of Waco and there's a river there called the Lake Brazos River. Mm -hmm. So she's showing me from the from the uh, from our the view from our room. She's saying, well, you may want to live in that area. You may you don't want to live across the river. And I said, why is there pollution there or something? She said, no, that's where the other people live. Ooh, I, said, oh, I said, what do you mean? Is this is like a, and I know in Hawaii they have a leper colony. I said, are the lepers there? They said, no, you know, <laughs> They said, no, you know, the other people. And I said, no, I, I don't know what you mean. And she said, you know, it's, it's mostly a black population. And I said, well, why do you call it the other people? You know, and she had no answer because she was from the South. But then we moved to Virginia. And again, you know, it's, it's more North uh, and East than Waco, Texas, but it's still the South. And you still see the old biases, the old uh, 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 inequalities that, you know, they were years ago that still exist. And uh, the story that Matt was alluding to is I, I, up until a few years ago when I considered myself old. So when I was younger, you know, in my 50s, I used to ask all the people that I meet on the street or that I would work, say, uh, as a Southerner, what's the most life-changing event in your lifetime? As, as a, Growing up in the North, the most life-changing event uh, there were uh, two or three of them. And one obviously was John Kennedy. The other was Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy. Those, but the John Kennedy was the most life shattering for me because I was only 12 years old when he was killed. And I remember getting on the school bus, say hi to the bus driver that I did every, every afternoon. And he said, did you hear the president was killed? And as a 12 year old, I thought he was kidding. And I laughed until I got home. So I, I like to ask older people, what's the most life, what's the biggest life event uh, in your lifetime, just like for most of the kids, my, uh, most of the people that are my children's ages, probably 9-11 is probably the most uh, shocking event. And I said to this gentleman who was a security guard uh, where we work, and he was, he was brought up in the South near Petersburg, Virginia, and he's a good old Southern boy and a white guy, white guy. And I said, Jesse, what's the most life-changing event to this day? And he was in his seventies at that time. I said, Jesse, what's the most life-changing event in your lifetime? And he looked at me and he said, Steve, I never thought I'd drink out of the same water fountain as a black person or go to the same bathroom as a black person. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't, my jaw hit the ground. I could not believe that he said that to me, although I knew it existed, but until I met somebody who experienced that, 
you know, I guess it was a reality check for me. And it was shocking, true, but shocking. I want to, I want to pause there because I think this is a beautiful bridge to you, Mrs. Roots. Um, like, and, and this is, when, when do you think this, do you remember around the time that this was for you, Steve, when you spoke to him? Uh, I started working there in 94, so it was probably uh, close to 99. Close to 99. Okay, close to 99, um, which is amazing, right? That he, for him as a white guy, he was in, he, that, was in that was a monumental thing for him. He shared water, a water fountain, and used the same bathroom as a black person. To flip to you, Mrs. Roops, you know, like what, what was it like, right? When, when you think about having to have these lines of separation, you, co you covered it somewhat earlier. Um, what was that like for you, you know, starting to share with white people? I mean, did you, did you, did you like kind of like stay away from it a little bit and, you know, you weren't sure? You know what? I never really gave any of that a whole lot of thought. Okay. I'm going to tell you why. I am number one. I don't think anybody on this earth is any more important than I am. And this is the way I feel about it. I'm, I'm just, just the way I am. I don't care what color you are. I can get along with you. I can work with you. I can socialize with you. But I'm going to give you as much as you give me. If you show me that you are a true friend, you like me, you love me, or whatever, that's fine. I'm going to be just as truthful and just as friendly to you as you are to me. But if you're one of those people that you think you up here and I'm down here, mm -hmm. then we're not going to get along very well. And I'm going to let you know, you think you hot stuff? Well, baby. I think I'm hotter than you are. So you can stay <laughs> in your place and I'll stay in mine. So I, like I really had a lot of confrontation as far as black and white. I, I remember the signs vividly. But I tell you, my mom was, you didn't know whether she was white or black because she was, she was really, really white. But uh, I never forget my dad tried to take her to the movies one night and they got to the movies and they told um, my dad, you can't bring her in here. So it just goes to show you what people see. It's just what they see on the outside. Mm -hmm. it, and what, what does that matter? It's not what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside. So, you know, these are the, these are the things that like I say, it probably hurt her. It probably hurt him too. Yeah. But um, I, you know, I, 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 I have, I have three friends. I, I, and you know, living here in Virginia now for almost twenty-eight years, uh, I know a lot of people. I know a lot of people from all walks of life. But I only, I use the word friend very carefully. I, I value the word friend. And my number one friend is my wife. And by the way, she made me say that. Um, <laughs> Matthew is number two, even though that we haven't been physically in the same place in a very long time, but we have a special connection, I believe. And I have another friend in Atlanta who I work with. I actually hired the gentleman and we became very good friends. So that, that's it. You know, you can talk to people and find out what they're about, but they're only going to tell you and show what they want you to hear. 
You know, if you ask people about, well, you know, is this guy the same as this guy? Yeah, everybody's created equal. When you walk away, you find out what they really believe is everybody is created equal, but some are created more equal than others. Mm. And those are the phonies that I don't want to have anything to do with. Mm. Well, when I did the, that um, thing for the gentrification, uh, it's a white couple that lives across the street on the corner from me. And I think they moved here from Pennsylvania. Well, in my interview, I was saying, like I was talking about the neighbors not being neighbors anymore. So this was, I don't know, maybe two or three weeks after he went on Facebook. I was sweeping off the front porch and I saw this lady coming across the street and she was kind of doing like this, trying to see around the, the, the bush. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, um, I'm looking for Miss Roots. I said, that's me. And she came on in the, in the, in the um, yard and came up on the porch. She said, well, I live across the street over there on the corner, my husband and I. She said, and I just came over here to let you know that you do have a neighbor. Mm. She said, I told my husband, she said, when I saw it, he, she said, I told my husband, I'm going to find this lady. And she said, uh, I want you to know that you do have a neighbor. She said, and I'm going to give you my phone number and my husband's phone number. And if you ever need either one of us for anything, you just call us and we are your neighbors and we'll be right over here to do whatever we can for you. And that's what the, the couple did that live on the other side of me. But like I said, there are some good people whose hearts are good. And there are some who are going to hell hating. And that's just, it's, I mean, it's, it's just the way it is. And they don't, know, they don't know why they don't like you. If you ask them the reason why, they probably don't even have an answer. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to close off, I, I want to, um, first off, you guys, I mean, are absolutely amazing. I don't even have words to describe uh, the, 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 the knowledge, the experience, the wisdom you guys have shared on this call. Um, I wanna give y'all both an opportunity maybe just to say, is there anything else you'd like to address us young folks about? Um, or if there are any questions or whatever you have for each other, but look, anything that you guys would like to say before we, uh, before we close out, Mrs. Roots, again, I'm a, I'm a ladies first uh, person, so anything? Uh, well, I'll just say thank you for the opportunity to express some of my feelings. Mm-hmm. And uh, my children always say, uh, don't ask mama what you think if you don't want to know, because she's certainly going to tell you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I tell them and I tell everybody else, I'm going to tell you what I mean and I'm gonna mean what I say. Mm. So I'm just being truthful when I tell you these things today, but I wouldn't, the life that I have, I wouldn't trade for anything in this world. I tell you, I went out to take, like I said, I had a birthday a couple of days ago and when I was telling my youngest daughter that I didn't know what I was gonna do because I've been sick and I said, normally what I do, I just cook just cook and cook and cook. And I'll just say, everybody come. And they said, well, mommy, you sure you don't want us to bring anything? I said, no, just come and bring yourself. But I said, this time I'm not feeling well and I'm kind 
kind of wondering if I'll cook something. And I have this guy, he's a caterer. I said, maybe I'll cook some and I'll get Mr. Woody to cook some. So my youngest daughter said, don't worry about it. I got this. So when people started calling me and asking me, what are you going to do for your birthday? I said, I'm not doing anything. I said, Michelle told me I got this. So she got it. <laughs> so um, Beverly, her mom, she asked me on Monday, she said, Mama, she said, what are you going to do for your birthday? I said, I don't have anything planned. I said, Shelly said she got this, so I'm letting Shelly have this. So she said, well, I'm coming uh, on uh, Wednesday, and I'm going to bring you dinner. She said, what do you want to eat? So I said, well, I'll tell you what, go to um, Red Lobster and get me the Admiral's Feast and go to Olive Garden and get me a big salad. <laughs> she said, well, what time do you want to eat? I said, about five o'clock. She said, okay. So I, I normally try to take a nap at three o'clock in the afternoon, but I guess I was so excited by 4.15, I hadn't been to sleep. And I just said, well, I better get up because Pippa's going to be here at five. So I got up and it was when five o'clock came, I got restless because she wasn't there. So about 10 minutes after five, I walked to the door. She was parking on the other side of the street. And so she came on in the house, she bought the food and we sat, I sat at that end of the table. She sat at this end. So as soon as she sat down, her phone rang. She got up to go answer the phone and she came back. She said, mom, uh, Reverend Wilkins said to tell you happy birthday. I said, tell her, I said, thank you. So she sat back down, the phone rang again. She got back up again. She went in the den and she came back. She said, you go and start because looks like my phone is not going to stop ringing. So anyway, I went on, said my grace and started to eat. And, and I got about halfway done and the doorbell rang. And I said, she did like this, look down the hall, and I said, who is it? She said, I don't know. I said, can you see? So she walked down the hall a few steps, and she turned around. She came back. She said, I don't know who that is. You better, you better go to the door, because I don't know who it is. I went and opened the front door, and her dad, my son, and his girlfriend, Hmm. They had decorated the front porch, the yard, the fence, everything. They had balloons and streamers and banners and flowers and everything all over the, the front porch. That's and awesome. then the cars started to come back and I, we just had a birthday parade. Good for you. And uh, I said, oh, these kids are something else. So I went out uh, yesterday to take the trash out and the guy lives next door he said miss roots and i said yeah he said uh somebody came by today <laughs> say i think his name was scott well he was a day late i don't know what happened to him but the party had been the day before <laughs> so he said you know what that was a great thing that your children did. I said, yeah, you know what? I just feel so blessed that my children love me enough to do that. He said, you know, it almost brought tears to my eyes. He said, as a matter of fact, it did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's why I tell you, I feel like I'm just so blessed and I just feel rich, even though I ain't got no money. I, I still feel like I, uh, I'm the richest person in the world.
I, I appreciate you sharing that story because that definitely speaks to wealth that I think people don't give credit to. It's family, love, um, experiences, receiving your flowers when you're here. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, that's a huge thing. Mikhail, were you about to say something? Yes, I was going to say something. Um, Grandma, you might not even remember this, but it was probably about, gosh, I think I was still living in Richmond, so probably at least 10 years ago. And something had happened on the news and we were all talking and I asked my grandma what she thought about it. Cause we're both night owls. We like to stay up late and talk. And, um, you looked at me and you said, I feel sorry for y'all because back in my day, we knew who was with us and who was against us, but y'all don't have a clue. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because, <laughs> because so much stuff was done behind closed doors and, you know, policies and systems and all this stuff. But with everything that's happened in the last, you know, couple of months between the pandemic and George Floyd and Brianna and Ahmad, I think it's really making it harder to, for some people to hide behind some of those um, things that they had done before. And, you know, I look through my emails and I see all these emails from companies you know, where they feel like they have to speak out yeah. and we're for this, we're not for this. And CEOs are, you know, their emails are being exposed. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I never forgot that comment, but when I think about where we are now, you know, some of that stuff is just coming to the forefront. So just listening to y'all, I'm hopeful that it'll, you know, get better or people can learn how to have it better. But either way, I'm, I'm choosing to be hopeful. <laughs> and we have to be we have to be as hopeful as possible. So Steve, go ahead and uh, wrap us up with your sure. with your thoughts. And I'm going to turn my light on, so I'm just getting up to do that. Go ahead. Sure. So I, I you know Mrs. Roots mentioned uh, that she went to the Red Lobster. The last time I went to Red Lobster, the server came over and said, "Sir, do you know what you want?" And I said, "Well, do you have frog's legs?" And she said, "Oh yeah." And I said, "Good. Hop into the kitchen and get me some shrimp." Anyway. Uh, uh, Matt, I just want to wrap it up, uh, you know, again, by uh, thanking you so much for uh, this opportunity to participate this evening. I want to thank you for uh, putting this forum in place and hopefully it'll go on for a very long time. And if you don't bring it to the TV stations or the radio stations, I will. Um, <laughs> but uh, I really appreciate what you've done. A uh, great deal of respect for you and, and, and everything you've done. And, uh, I, you know, I value you as a dear friend. So, uh, thank you so much for allowing me to participate. Mrs. Roots, I love your story. I love you. And uh, it was a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. I feel the same way. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Um, this was an amazing, an amazing, an amazing civil conversations. Uh, generations. Uh, I was born before Here it goes again. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're thankful. Um, yeah. And uh, thank you guys very much. I want to take one, one 30 seconds out just to say, you know, we are, uh, I want to, um, uh, it's all right. It's okay. Uh, I just want to dedicate this episode to Aunt Sint. Um, she passed away this week and She's loved. And uh, give your flowers to those you love um, while they're living. Stint gave a lot of flowers to us, and I'm thankful. And um, 
the Lyons family, um, the Wright family, the Buns, the Pittmans, my family, the Aguitos, we're going to miss you on scent. And thank you.